Well, uh, glad to hear that you guys uh, would claim me because not many people would. And uh, it's always a joyful news to uh, to have uh, the backing of um, of a church where I know that the Word of God is um, held in high standard and high esteem. And, um, it's always a, a treasure to be able to come back here. And, um, it's always an honor and, and a humbling experience to step um, behind this pulpit because I know... Um, Dennis is always diligent to uh, bring you guys a good word. And uh, I know that he's been preaching through Exodus uh, recently for a while, and so this message will not uh, be any new content, um, but rather it has been a challenge for me to, uh, to bring to you something, um, maybe some new insights or applications from this text that uh, might be able to challenge your heart and your soul and your life and to hopefully draw your heart to the cross of Christ. And so that is uh, what I hope for today. And uh, this text here is uh, deeply theological, but also extremely rich in practical Christian living. And that is um, a lot of what we will spend our time in looking at today. But by way of introduction to this text, I would just like to um, just say a few things. And uh, a lot of times people stray away from preaching book by book and verse by verse, um, which many of you have probably experienced in your journey before you got here, um, that a lot of pastors are willing to skip over texts such as this one because of their you know, toughness. They're not exactly the easiest texts to preach or to hear even. Um, and that is why I you know, greatly respect the expository preaching that takes place here and that you guys have heard this text and dealt with this text and now hopefully I can uh, bring a little bit new um, to the forefront of your mind as you uh, take a a fresh look at this text again. Uh, But what I think this text is truly proposing to us is that what we feel about God and what we think about God apart from the Word is really insignificant in describing to us who God is. If we walked around the world amongst us and looked at the trees and all this stuff, we would be able to deduce that God is a few certain things. But we would not be able to know the depths of the character of God and we would not be able to experience the great grace that is displayed to us in His love. And that is what this text is all about. So let us pray and then we will get straight into the text and take a look at this. Lord God, we come to You today and we thank You for giving us Your Word, for coming down to our level and speaking to us in our language. Lord God, that You are transcendent and high above all things, but You came down in in the Son, Lord God, that the Son came down and that He walked amongst us in flesh and displayed for us in perfection who You are. Your great truth, Your great love, And Lord, I pray that today You would speak through a a fallen man and that Your truth would come to ready ears, Lord God, and ready hearts. Lord, I pray that You would prepare us all here today as we hear from Your Word and as Your truth is proclaimed. In Your holy and righteous name we pray. Amen. Now the text we'll be reading from is Exodus chapter 4, verse 18-23. through And uh, I will read that for you. It says, Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt, 
and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of the Lord in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, Then you will go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I have said to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God's sovereignty here is the main point of this text. As I believe it is the main teaching of all of the scriptures. It is here put on display as God hardens some men ensuring their guilt. And He loves other men who do not deserve His love. And this truth, as it comes bearing upon our minds, and we see that we are here and we have come to worship God, should bring us to a great state of humility. Because each one of us was no less deserving of the hardening of God as Pharaoh was. There was nothing more wicked about Pharaoh than there was about each one of us as we came out of the womb. But yet God displayed grace in each one of our lives. And He brought us here to worship Him. And that is a great display of His sovereignty. And I believe that ultimately this truth brings all men to one of two positions. It brings them to a standing of humility or it brings them to a sense of great terror of the mighty power of God. Here we have two life-altering, mind-shattering, and God-exalting truths that we must understand. One, that God is absolutely sovereign. And two, God's love is particular. It's special. It's unique. And it's unearned. Now God's absolute sovereignty is mainly here in our text displayed over situations and over men. We could go on and on for days and years discussing how God is in control of every molecule and everything that is coming to existence on the earth. But in this text, we see God's sovereignty over situations and over men. But let us begin with how God is sovereign over situations. We'll pick up in verse 19. He tells, God tells Moses while he's in Midian. So before Moses has reached Egypt, God tells Moses, He interrupts him and tells him to go to Egypt. You see, God has His own prerogative. He not only determines the moment when things happen, but He also determines the means as well. He not only interrupted Moses' life, but He also gave him the message with which he had to take. God's sovereignty over timing is a very unique thing. And we think about it, God's timing is not always our timing, is it? When God brings things into our life, it's not always according to what we would like or according to our timetables. 
if you think about it, none of us were in control of the time in which we came into this earth. And many of us will not be in control of the time in which we leave it. God's timetable is distinct because God is distinct. The psalmist is known as if saying, How long, O Lord, how long has He waited for the promises that were given? We can see all the way back to Adam. God promises after the fall, He promises to Adam that I will give you a seed, a deliverer, a person who will save you from sin. God promises this in the seed to Adam, that a seed will crush the serpent who deceived them and caused them to fall. But God does not bring Christ about for many thousand years. Christ does not appear on the scene. He is not born in the manger for a very long time because God's timing is impeccable. It's perfect. But yet, for the psalmist, he even was like, How long, O Lord? How long? You see, God does things at His own pace and according to His own plan. And many of the times, we try to plan things in our lives and God interrupts them. And He does it on purpose. We see that here um, is what's taking place with Moses. Moses here has settled down. He has a life. He has a family. He is working for his father-in-law, Jethro. He is in Midian as a farmer, as a, as a sheep herder, whatever it may be that his job was. But he had a life, and God interrupts that life and tells him to go to Egypt. We think about the timetables of God. I will turn real quick to 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-4. through 4. God is not in a hurry to bring everything to pass. Because God has a perfect plan where all of His glory may be displayed, where all of His person may be known. And God is not rushing through time, frantically trying to make things happen, but rather God's timing is that all of His things may come to pass. Second Thess- or 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-4, it reads, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, the destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, you are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. You are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. You see, God's timing, when Christ returns and He bursts forth to interrupt time, when He comes in great judgment upon the earth, it will not be in the timing of men. In fact, when Christ returns, it will be very ill-timing for the people who have rejected Him over and over again. It will be a very inconvenient time when Christ returns for many. But for the children of God, it is a joyous time. It is a time where we get to look forward with hope and with great triumphant victory that Christ's return is a victory for us over the sin and the world and the devil. And it gives us great joy to see the timing of God is perfect. But also, as Moses is told to go to Egypt, we see another example in the Old Testament of Jonah. Jonah 1-2, God says to Jonah, Go to Nineveh. But what did Jonah do? Jonah, being stubborn, being rebellious in his heart, had less grace than God. God was going to to display grace in the lives of the Ninevites. 
But the prophet of God did not want God to display that grace. And so Jonah ran from God. When God said, go to Nineveh, Jonah ran. However, he arrived in Nineveh according to God's timing and brought many men to salvation according to Christ's own words. And this is exactly what is going on here for Moses. We see a call of God, God interrupting his timetable, giving him a divine commission to go to Egypt. And you see here we have an example for us. God has not spoken audibly to any of us here today to tell us what to do as he has with these two individuals. However, when God interrupts our timing with whatever he brings into our lives, we now are here given an example where we can either be like Moses or we can be like Jonah. Moses, when called while living in Midian, he quickly left to ask Jethro for permission to leave. He ran to him and he said, Please, let me go that I may see if my brethren in Egypt are still alive. And Jethro said, Go in peace. He picks up his entire family and he leaves without rebuttal and without complaint. He packs them on the back of a donkey and he prepares for a very hostile environment. My question to you, friends, is how many times do we postpone doing the work of God? When we see opportunities laid out before us to read His Word, to study His truths, to discuss Him with others, do we postpone it or do we put it to the side? How many times do we ignore an opportunity to display God's glory? Or do we grumble in our heart whenever besetting things fall upon us? Rather, we should remember that these things all happen according to God's absolute sovereign timing. I believe that we should seek the example of Moses and live without grumbling in this circumstance. There are many times I believe in a Christian's life where it is easy to become lax and neglect our calling. And there are times when persecution for our faith and hard times befall us and whenever even financial struggles come. And they never come in a good time. But they come in God's timing. I'm sure each of us can remember a financial struggle or a, a sickness that overcame us and that brought us to a, a great you know, illness or whatever. And it was in God's timing that it took place. Ecclesiastes 7.13 It says, Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what God has made crooked? Think about the circumstances that come in our lives. As our children, as our family, as our friends. As we run across people every day who do not know Christ. And who, it's like as if we see men walking and they're blind because they've never seen Christ. And it's as if they are just throwing themselves off of bridges into eternal destruction. And all we wish is that they would see Christ. But they're blind and they refuse to see. But consider this. How much heartbreak it gives us to see our loved ones that way. To see our our brothers, our sisters, our our aunts, our nephews, our, our friends, our closest relatives, those people that we love, as they walk on in bondage to sin. Which is exactly what Moses here is dealing with. He says, let me go see my brothers, my my friends, my family. They're all in bondage to Egypt. They're in bondage to idolatrous worship there while they are in Egypt. 
and they have forgotten God. Because when Moses first comes on the scene, they do not want to believe him. They tell him to leave because it would cause them more trouble. They have abandoned God. And think about the heartache that that brings to Moses and that it brings to us. But we must always consider the work of God. For who can make straight what God has made crooked? We must consider the crook in our lot. And that brings me to a a book that um, has been a great benefit to my life. A book by Thomas Boston. And he says this, Such a view of the crook, and when he says such a view, he's talking about understanding God's impeccable timing, God's sovereignty over all instances. Understanding such a view of the crook in our lot is very suitable to still improper risings of the heart whenever we seek to grumble or complain about things that come about. And and they quiet us very quickly. For who can make straight what God has made crooked? As to the crook in your lot, God has made it. And it must continue for a while while He'll have it that way. Should we try our utmost to straighten it, to change it, this crooked thing, we must understand that our attempts will be in vain. And they will not change no matter what we do. For only He who has made the crook can mend it. And only He who has bent it can make it straight. This consideration of the view is a proper means at once to silence and to satisfy men. To bring them to a dutiful submission to their Maker and their governor underneath that crook that is in their law. And if we think about it, only Christ heals broken hearts. And only the gospel saves fallen souls. And so why we may try to work, why we may try to, to manipulate or to change people's minds, we must understand that all of those things are in vain and cannot save. And our satisfaction should rest in that God saves sinners. Therefore, we must be ready for the work of the Lord. You see, God's sovereignty is displayed over time, but God's sovereignty is also displayed over provision. The provision for Moses' life. You see, God gives Moses two sets of news. One set of news is very good news. And the other set of news seems not so good. But let us take a look at the good news before we continue on. Verse 19, he says, For all the men who are seeking your life are dead. One of the interrupting declarations of God is a manner in which God shows His sovereignty over situations through the provision of Moses' life. God provides for the good of His people. He tells Moses, All those who are seeking your life are dead. In the end, whatever God seeks to do is ultimately for His glory which is our greatest good. God provides for us. He provided for the Israelites in the wilderness with manna and quail. He provided for Elijah with with ravens, bringing him provisions. He provided for the safety of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego while they were in the fiery fiery furnace. He He provided for the safety of Daniel while he was in the lion's den. And here God displays His sovereignty over situations by the provision of Moses and allowing for the time to pass for the death of those seeking to kill him to come. You see, Moses, had it not been for the provision of God, would have gone to Egypt and been killed. Because you see, Moses, just like the rest of us, 
was a sinner saved by grace. Moses was wanted for committing murder. Moses had killed a man in Egypt. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. But God had provided enough time here to allow for those men to die off for the safety of Moses to come to present his good news. God preserved his life. So this ought to provoke our minds to application as we think of how God preserved Moses' life, how God is right now preserving our lives as well. We cannot take for granted the glorious provisions of God. If we look around us, we see that we are not persecuted. We are not hunted down. We are not starving or wanting. We are not lacking anything essential for life. And God has given us much more than we deserve. We don't even deserve Him to come down and tell us who He is. To display for us the glory of His name. But God made Himself known to us through His Word. And we do not deserve that. Much less the rain that falls from the air. Or the the gentle breeze that brushes across our face. Or all the glories that God has given us. All the great things. We must be careful not to take them for granted. There is a reason today why God keeps this very building from standing. Why God does not cause it to crush us underneath it. There's a reason. It is not by coincidence that this building is standing. It is not by coincidence that we walked into this room safely today, that we were not killed in a car wreck on our way here like so many others were this morning. It is not by coincidence that God allowed us to wake up and take a breath of air. But you see, God has planned. He has a beautiful plan with which to glorify and exalt His Son. And that plan is here laid out for us. It is displayed for us as the greatest thing with which we can obtain with our eyes and with our hearts and with our minds to see Christ. And God has given us that already. So think about the provision He has provided for us on this side of the cross that those prior to it did not get to see in its fullness. But God's sovereignty is not just over these inanimate objects, but God's sovereignty here is displayed in this text over men. And that is the most controversial issue in our day in the church, in any day in the church. If you look through church history, there are many men who have opposed these very texts and they have despised them because God is not made to be a man. You see, many people want God to be able to change His mind, to change His ways, to be changeable like us. So that way, hopefully, in the day of judgment, they might even be able to sway Him. Who knows what intention it may be. But you see, God's intentions are fixed. God's purposes are fixed, just as everything that comes to pass in our life is fixed. And that is a crushing blow to many men. But God is not ashamed of this truth. And He gives it to us here. And He says, God tells Moses that although He will perform the miracles before Pharaoh, which we would think would be to some avail, if God performed a miracle to display that He was speaking, then men might listen. Men might listen. Whenever God tells Pharaoh through Moses to let the people go that they may serve God, and when that is backed up with a miracle turning water into blood, blackening the sky, sending plagues upon the land, you would think that He would repent and that He would let the people go. But you see, God has a purpose here. And God's purpose 
is that Pharaoh will not allow the people to go. And there's a greater purpose even behind that. I don't want to save that for you um, to the end. He says, See that you perform, in verse 21, before Pharaoh, all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. You see, God has sovereignly ordained every step that you will take, as it is declared in Proverbs 16.9. But God's sovereignty over men is a shunned doctrine. It is offensive. And people have decided to cut it off, or sand it down, or skip over the verses whenever God is displayed as being sovereign over the replies of men. But you see, God will not remain silent, and He has shouted it from the rooftops of this text and many others, which we will look at. But He has also done this through His vessels throughout church history. God's absolute sovereignty is over the eternal destiny, the resting place of all men's souls. And it is for a purpose. He is just in doing it. And He is without partiality. So let us take a look at this great doctrine. See, God's sovereignty over uh, men is either one as a vessel of honor or one as a vessel of dishonor. It is clearly taught here. Here we see the sovereign right of God to choose. God here has chosen Moses over Pharaoh. Has He not? God has chosen the Israelites over the Egyptians. You see, God has set His special love, His favor, His unmerited grace upon some people and purposely, justly, righteously not set it upon others and caused their hardness. You see, with every choice of God, there is also a refusal. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 teaches us very clearly of God's choice for us. He says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and faith in truth. He is thankful that God has chosen some people He says, but we should always give thanks to God for His choice of you. Because God does not choose all individuals. If there is an election of some, there are others who are not elected. They are not chosen. John chapter 6, verse 37 says the same thing. Let us turn there real quick. John 6, 37 reads... So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Wait, that's the wrong verse. Sorry, 37, not 67. 37, it says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. The Father has given people to the Son. Before the foundations of the world, God so loved the Son, the Father so loved His Son, that He gave Him a prized possession in the church, in the body of believers here today, before we were even knitted together in our womb, God had given us here to the Son to be a prized possession, to be purchased by His blood. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. It's not that they might come to me or that they should come to me. They will come to me. There are some who are given to the Father are given by the Father to the Son. And there are others who are not given. Revelation 21, 27 
This verse here is a crushing blow to our human pride. 21.27 reads, And nothing unclean, no one who partakes abomination, practices abomination and lying shall come into it and is into heaven. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life. That book, which according to Revelation earlier tells us was written before the foundations of the world by God Himself. You see, Christ is said to be the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the author in one sense because He has written our name down in the book of life. He is the author in another sense because He applies that faith by His blood through the Spirit into our hearts. You see, there are some whose names are written in the Lamb's book. And there are others' names that are not written there. The hearts of all men rest in the hand of God. From the peasant to the servant, to the warrior, and even to the kings and princes and the the mighty rulers of this world. They all rest in the hands of the potter, and they are but clay. And He will use these vessels for whatever purpose He may desire. It says in Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. You see, there are some vessels whose names are not written in the book of life, who have not been given to the Son, who have not been chosen by the Father, who are wicked vessels that were created, it says. God has made everything, even the wicked, for the day of evil, for the day of destruction. So think about it. There are times when we are persecuted by others for the faith. And God has created them for the purpose, many of them, for our persecution. Look at Christ. It says that... Christ was nailed to the cross by ungodly men. You see, the Father, it wasn't an accident that the Son was nailed to the cross. But it was a divine plan. And there were vessels created for the purpose of bringing about that divine plan, which ultimately would be our salvation. This is a stumbling block to Jews and his foolishness to Gentiles. It's a stumbling block because a, a Jewish man dying on a tree doesn't make sense because it's a curse. How could a curse save someone? That's why it's foolishness. That's why it's a stumbling block. But you see, it is our boast. It is our great joy that God would love the Son and love us into the Son. Let's continue on. You see, God's sovereignty over men is purposeful. God has a great purpose here. God's sovereignty over the hearts of men is for a great purpose and it is that His name might be proclaimed amongst all the nations. Whether now, in the grace that God has given them, or in the time of judgment, whenever their knees are broken by the rod of God, His name will be proclaimed. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, God had determined to bring all creatures into existence. He determined to bring Moses into existence. He determined to bring Pharaoh into existence. There is not one person who exists that God did not create. Therefore, there are those whom God created that He knew would despise and reject Him. That He knew would crucify the Savior. Nevertheless, God determined to create them. It was not purposeless, but purposeful as a means to display Christ's infinite worth. God's absolute sovereignty in His impeccably, that's holy, righteous character. He purposed that some would spend eternity in heaven and others would spend eternity 
and the tormenting fires of hell, according to Mark 16.16. God creates people fully aware of their future rejection of Christ and fully aware of their unbelief. Before the Incarnation, we see that Israel is given a special place in the love of God. They are given a special place in seeing the divine revelation of God. God did not appear audibly or speak verbally and give a written word through the prophets, through Moses, and through the writings. He did not do that to all the nations. But God did this for the people of Israel. They were blessed amongst all the nations. It says it in Acts 14, 16, Amos 3, 2, for amongst all the peoples of the world, God chose out of those peoples the people of Israel. And today the same could be said of us. God has chosen us. Not because we are wiser or better or stronger or more willing or more righteous than others. But I believe in spite of those things. Many times we are the ones who are less deserving to have been chosen. Many times I see people walk by and they are more gracious than I am. They are more caring sometimes than I am. There are, more, there are better people who will flood the rivers of hell that were better than all of us here. And that should humble us. That should bring us to a sense of lowness as we kneel before the throne of Christ and we exalt God for choosing the wretched to make His treasure. He didn't pick the king that He could have had. God could have picked Pharaoh, the one who was a mighty man, who conquered the weak, a powerful man, a person of great stature and appearance and looks. God could have chosen Pharaoh, but God didn't. God chose the slave nation. That ought to give us hope. As we are enslaved to our various sins, and we fight through them, God has given us deliverance from our personal Egypt. God has bought us and brought us out of darkness into marvelous light and into the promised land of His great truth. I'd like to press this a little bit further. As God has said He is in control of the heart of Pharaoh, He is in control of the birthplace of Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't have to be born an Egyptian, be put into power. But if we look around us, it's the same thing. You see, God has determined each one of us how many hairs are on our head. We don't have any control over that. God has determined the color of our eyes, the pigment of our skin, our physical ability to do things. You see, there are children who are born with great eyesight, beautiful eyes, great complexion. And then there are children who are born disabled, who have no ability to run. And we take for granted our ability to get out of bed in the morning. Instead of thanking God continually for what He has blessed us with, the ability to do great things. But not just the ability to do things, but the ability and the heart and the willingness to love Him. You see, there is not a second that could be added to our lives or a day that could be taken from us as long as God is in control. Not a hand could fall against us unless God wills it. And if God wills it, it should give us joy. We may not always understand the joy whenever bad things happen to us, and we are tend and prone to wander and complain and grumble, but we should see that God is somehow conforming us into the image of Christ through our sufferings. Whenever a loved one divorces somebody or leaves somebody who's unfaithful in their marriage, 
Think about this. This is very, very practical. In this manner, if a person divorces somebody, God has determined that would take place before the foundations of the world, the wicked vessel for the purpose of wickedness. But think about the believer who is in that circumstance. How they can display the love of Christ holding no offense against the person who has sinned against them. And they can be like God in displaying God in that measure. They can be patient. They can be loving. They can be forgiving as God has been forgiving to us. But as we get back to the text, sorry I got a little away there, but um, Moses is a messenger. Pharaoh is a ruler. And God has decreed grace in the life of Moses through direct verbal communication, the burning bush, and a heart that would listen. But Pharaoh, it says God has made him hard as flint. God decreed to hide the truth from his eyes. Luke 10, verse 21, is an earth-shattering verse. Christ Himself is speaking. And this is what Christ says. Let us hear this. Luke 10, 21. At that very time, He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. Christ is here rejoicing. Why is Christ rejoicing? Let us see. Christ is rejoicing. He says, I praise You, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Christ is praising God that some men have been hidden from the truth. The wise have been hidden. The self-righteous the people, um, the pharisaical people of his day, the religious leaders who believed that they did not need anything, that they were good enough in and of themselves and in their works to merit heaven, these people Christ is ashamed of. And he praises his Father for hardening them. Now, I do not believe that we have the intuitive mind of Christ to know the hearts of men. So let's not walk away thinking that we should praise God for hardened men, but we should know that it is well-pleasing in God's sight that some men are hardened. And we, presenting the Gospel to them, seeing them rejecting it, should still praise God for His graciousness and pray for their salvation. That if it's in God's will, He will do it. God is just. And God would be just in damning all men, in hardening all men. God is just in hardening Pharaoh as He would be just if He were to harden all of us. All men while in the flesh are blind to the things of God. Psalm 36.1 says, Transgressions speak to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. They don't recognize God as God. They don't worship God as God. They don't give Him what is due. And therefore, God is just in giving them over to debased minds, wicked hearts, hardened hearts. They do, not need, they do not see a need to fear Him and they do not see a need to give Him reverence. And even though they know their own wickedness, they have blinded themselves to it and, conceived, or, and convinced themselves that they are really not that bad. Romans 11, 8-10 says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day, and David says, let their, trouble, their table become a snare 
and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to not see and bend their backs forever. To this very day, this remains true. It says, yes, to this very day, Lord, you have given your heart, or um, you have not given, you, they have not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Deuteronomy 29.4 Christ would come and live amongst a people such as these. I am not opposed to think that I would have been just as guilty of nailing Christ to the cross as the men in Rome. And unless we are willing to take our part in the guilt of the cross and in its shame, we are not willing to take our part in its future glory. We are just as guilty. It is natural in men to hear things which pertain true to God and to turn off their minds, to to be offended, even apathetic to these things. But you see, I believe that the truth of Christ does not stir within us affections towards God. If the talk of God does not ignite and define the sum of our conversations and the the fire of our life, if we are not most joyful in Him, then He is not the treasure of our heart. And if He is not the treasure of our heart, then most certainly He is absent. Pharaoh himself justly invited the hand of God's hardening. I'd like to say one thing about this because I don't want you to think that Pharaoh did not deserve to be hardened. Because he is a fallen lump of clay. He is deteriorating. He is wicked. He is dirty. He is dead. But the way it should be understood, let me do this by way of illustration. You see, whenever we turn on a water faucet, water comes out. We don't have to create the pressure. We don't have to create the water. The things are already there. If we turn the faucet, what is naturally there just comes out. You see, it's like that with Pharaoh. You see, God doesn't have to cause the pressure of Pharaoh's hardening. God doesn't have to cause the flowing of his wickedness. It's already there. God simply removes his grace, untightens the knob, allowing his wickedness to flow even more. You see, the opposite would be not true. A pump, you say. If someone pumps water out of the ground, you have to create the pressure to pump water out of the ground whenever you pump an old you know, pumping well. When that happens, you have to create the pressure to cause it, the water to come out. And you see, God does not create and make Pharaoh wicked. Pharaoh is already wicked and God releases the valve that allows his wickedness to flow. That is the hardening of God. That God is in control of the facets of men. Think about Job. Job was not overrun while God's hedge of protection was around him. But Satan said to God, if you would remove your hedge of protection, then he would be overcome. And that's exactly what happened. God removed his hedge of protection and all that Job had was taken from him. It's not because God made those men more wicked. Those wicked intentions were already there. But it is God's restraining grace that keeps every man from being more wicked than they could be. Think about Hitler, for example. We could think of how he could be worse than he really was. He didn't kill his own mother. He could have been far worse than what he was. There was an ounce of God's restraining even in his life. But God, without partiality 
has decided to display His glory through saving some vessels. God's love is particular. Paul uses this text in Romans 9. I'd like to turn there real quick and then just comment on that because Paul finds this text in Exodus 4 so important to understanding God that he goes at very great length to explain it in the book of Romans. And so I think it would be injustice for me not to at least mention that here or to at least look at it. And I'll start off in Romans um, verse 9. Um, and we'll start off in uh, verse 14. It says, What shall we say then about God's hardening men? What shall we say? That it's unjust? That it's not fair? That it's not right? Should we say those things? Paul's declaration is this. There is no injustice in God, is there? May it never be that there would be injustice in God. He says, God forbid. That's what Paul says. The thought of there being injustice in God is so far removed from Paul's mind that when this comes up, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the choosing of one and the not choosing of others, Paul says, there's no injustice with God, is there? God forbid there be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Paul then goes on in verse 21, he says, Or does not the potter, God, have the right over the clay, the people, to make from the same lump fallen creatures one vessel for honorable use, to be purchased and loved by the Son, and another vessel for dishonorable use, for common use, to be hardened like Pharaoh? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Think about the injustices that God had to be patient towards in Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a sinner from the day he was born, just like the rest of us. Pharaoh was an idol worshiper from the day he was born, just like the rest of us. And God dealt with patience in the life of Pharaoh, so this day might come. But God's mercy is amazing. And that is the next point of this whole text. And it should give us hope and should ignite our hearts with a great passion to love Christ. Although it may seem very dismal hearing about, you know, very gloomy hearing about the righteous judging of God upon the wicked hearts of wicked men, it should be enlightening to us to hear about His mercy. And here's what it says. It says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. The Israelites were in the midst of Egypt. They had adopted the idols of Egypt, according to Joshua 24.14. The Israelites were not a great people. They were not a people deserving to be called the children of God. We are not people deserved to be called the children of God. They were not faithful to God. They had adopted the idols in their midst. 
And they did not trust God. But God, not because of anything in them, chose them to be called His children. Not just His friends. Friends come and go. You can lose your friends. But your family, you can't really get rid of. And God has said, These are my children. They're mine. My possessions. They belong to me. And God loves His people. If there has ever been a love, it is the greatest love displayed to us that we can comprehend is the love of God for His people, which displays to us the love of God for God. Was there one of us here who deserved to be called the Son of God? No, not one. But God, unashamed, professes His sovereign love, particularly for a slave nation. People in bondage to sin that were hopeless and weak, the cast off, the slaves of men, the lowly, the despised, the persecuted. God loves men such as these. He does it on the backdrop of destroying the self-righteous. You see, there's a backdrop to God's love that heightens our sense of understanding of His mercy and His grace and His love. And that is His wrath. Without that backdrop, love doesn't really mean much of anything. And God is not ashamed to display the beauty of His love on the backdrop of Pharaoh's hardening. God is not ashamed to call a particular people His own. Yet we seem to be ashamed to say that God loves us only. He loves the people of God only. And He'll harden whomever He will harden. We're ashamed to say that because we are ashamed of God. Could you imagine with me for a moment if your love, you know, your wife, or your husband, whatever it may be, the love of your life right now on this earth that you've been bound together with. Imagine your significant other that God has united. Imagine with me for this moment. The, you know, the sole instrument of your human physical love here on earth We're standing amongst all of the people of the world. Suppose that your wife was standing there and you looked at her. How would you how would you respond? Would you be ashamed to declare your particular love for her, saying, I love you and no one else? Or would you be ashamed of your love for her alone? Think of how crushing it would be to your significant other to hear from a mass of other people that you love them all the same. Think about how crushing that would be to them. And this is what we do to God when we do not reciprocate the love that He declares to have for us. Choosing us like He chose the Israelites from amongst our bondage. That, you are, that when you are dead in your sin, and He pronounces you by name, we are ashamed to say that He loves the people who believe in Christ alone. But it's for a purpose of hope. The killing of Pharaoh's firstborn is for the purpose of hope. This may not come to our mind right away of how could this be hopeful? That God is going to kill a child. How could this be hopeful? But there is great hope in this text. In fact, it is the greatest hope that all men would ever hear. God in His special love ordained all these events for a purpose 
even the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son, and is for the exaltation of Christ. As God would purpose the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and bring about his son's death. And God, through various means in bringing about Pharaoh's hardening, would then bring about the greatest sign pointing to the cross in the entire Old Testament. The Lamb of God. You see, in Pharaoh's hardening there came about a judgment, the final plague that God was not just going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn, but God was going to kill the firstborn of all men, Israelite and Egyptian. That was God's final plague. God's final hardening would bring, uh, Pharaoh would bring that to pass. Had God stopped His glory right there, had God not hardened Pharaoh at that moment, there would be no glory displayed. But you see, God wanted from this point to make Christ the center of all His delivering works. You see, God was not just going to kill the firstborn of Egypt, but also of Israel. Unless there was a substitute. Unless there was one to stand in their place. Unless there was a spotless lamb to be slain. Whose blood had to be placed over the doorposts of the Israelite children to save them. Otherwise, they would likewise die. You see, we were all too on the road to hell in our humanity. But God displayed His special love. Did He not? And that He sent His spotless Lamb, His Son, to die in our place. We deserve to be dead. But He sent His Son to die for us. And as Spurgeon so cleverly said, he said, Indeed, we shall sing at last the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, clearly indicating that the redemption out of Egypt was always meant to be a leading type of the redemption of God's people from out of the midst of the world. For Christ has a people whom He has redeemed. He was a Lamb that was placed over the doorpost of our wicked hearts. And He has redeemed us from all of the men of the world. And there is a church with which it is written, Christ loved His church. And He gave Himself for her. That is why He is called the Lamb of God. And as we see that when He first steps onto the scene in His um, ministry work, John the Baptist says in the Gospel of John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This text comes into technicolor, brand new life, in a way that we would have never seen it had it not been for seeing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There would be no Passover lamb. This text would mean almost nothing. But this text has great significance. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This type in the Old Testament was for the sole purpose of dragging our minds to Christ that when we are back here, we can look there and we can see Him. This is the most beautiful hope in the world. It was the hope that the people of Israel celebrated at Passover all the time. They had to celebrate this because it was the hope of their future that there would be a lamb, a delivering lamb, a seed that was promised, a people to be delivered by the hand of God, through God. That's the hope. 
the Lamb of God. And God has to harden Pharaoh in order for us to see the hope. By way of conclusion, I have a few remarks that I'd like to challenge you with today. What if God, wishing to display His glory and to make His name known, chose us as vessels of destruction? Would it not be justified and righteous in doing so? I tell you today, He would be just. And there are many people in this world who were created for that purpose. But today is a day of mercy. I believe every Christian ought to regularly examine their hearts to contemplate the judgments that were due to them because it brings them gratitude and humiliation as they look to Christ. God has thrown open the floodgates of mercy on us today. To come here amongst like-minded believers, to sing praises to His name, and to read His Word. Those are the floodgates of mercy. And in the words of the Prince of Preachers again, Spurgeon, he says, The work of rescuing perishing sinners out of the present evil is as worthy of God as is the work of delivering the Israelites out of Egypt. So as there is a hope for Egypt, or for Israel to be delivered from their bondage in Egypt, there is a hope for us today to be delivered from the world. This great wonder of God ought to bring every man to those one of two positions. One of great humility or one of great terror. If this be true, we must examine ourselves. If Christ is not the center of our satisfactions, if Christ is not the center of our living, if He is not esteemed highly and costly and beautiful, if all other things do not seem as worthless in comparison to Him, then we ought to be in great terror. If the God-exalting doctrines of God's sovereignty, in particular love, are not central to our affections and to our heart, then we ought to be horror-struck. We ought to be taken back. See, that was what the apostles were all about. They say, we wish to know nothing amongst you but Christ and Him crucified. That's all they taught. That must shape our lives. Christ and Him crucified. Perhaps if you are uncomfortable with these doctrines, then you see yourself as safe, then you should think again. Look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought he was safe. Seeing his palace as a king, ruling over many men, Pharaoh thought he was safe. He thought he was trusting in the true gods. But Pharaoh was wrong, wasn't he? Pharaoh was not safe. From the moment Pharaoh was born, he was not safe. Because God's judgment lingered over him. But God is not ashamed. That is why He has placed His Spirit in our lives, in our hearts. My friends, we must remember that we were not better than Pharaoh. We were no less wicked and corrupt. Our destitution was great. Our sin stunk so high that it reached into heaven and brought an immense, immediate offense to God. That's how wicked we are. We cannot forget that. We were no less deserving of God's pardoning. 
But God's hardening was for the purpose of ensuring guilt on vessels of wrath to display His glory on the vessels of mercy. Friends, we're vessels of mercy. That God, through all the course of history, for some reason, chose us. What a humbling thing. While we were haters of God, He bled for us. While we were mockers of God, He bled for us. While we were blinded in death to God, He bled for us. And while we were in bondage to sin, He bled for us. And that ought to give us hope. Let us pray. Lord God, we come to You today and we thank You. We thank You for Your great justice. Your great power. Your great might. Lord God, we are brought to a state of humiliation. Humbled, Lord, that we were were worse than the pharaohs of our day. But yet, Lord God, You decided to send Your Son to die for us. To be a substitute in our place. To impute His perfect merit, His righteousness, onto us. Lord God, that You would look on Him and count Him as a curse for us. Lord God, that You would crush the Lamb. That You would kill Your Son for us. Lord, we pray for the salvation of all of Your people. Lord God, that it would be our hope that no man would go a day without hearing the grace of Christ leaving our lips. Lord God, that it would leave us in a state of contentment, not grumblers, but Lord, that it would it would remind us of Your impeccable timing and Your sovereignty over our lives. And Lord, that we would take every opportunity as a moment to look to You, to see what You are doing and conforming us into in the image of Your Son. Lord, I pray that You would bring these things to bear on our minds throughout the week. But Lord, that You would bring to bear the grace of Your Son to mind on us this week. Lord, we thank You for the Lamb. Your Lamb that took away our sin. And in Your holy and perfect name we pray. Amen.